Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy. Essay 2, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy by John Stuart Mill. Essay 2. Of the Influence of Consumption on Production. Part 1. Before the appearance of those great writers whose discoveries have given to political economy its present comparatively scientific character, the ideas universally entertained, both by theorists and by practical men, on the causes of national wealth, were grounded upon certain general views, which almost all who have given any considerable attention to the subject now justly hold to be completely erroneous. Among the mistakes which were most pernicious in their direct consequences, and tended in the greatest degree to prevent a just conception of the objects of the science, or of the test to be applied to the solution of the questions which it presents, was the immense importance attached to consumption. The great end of legislation in matters of national wealth, according to the present opinion, was to create consumers. A great and rapid consumption was what the producers of all classes and denominations wanted to enrich themselves and the country. This object, under the varying names of an extensive demand, a brisk circulation, a great expenditure of money, and sometimes, totidium verbis, a large consumption, was conceived to be the great condition of prosperity. It is not necessary, in the present state of the science, to contest this doctrine in the most flagrantly absurd of its forms or of its applications. The utility of a large government expenditure for the purpose of encouraging industry is no longer maintained. Taxes are not now esteemed to be like the dews of heaven which return again in prolific showers. It is no longer supposed that you benefit the producer by taking his money, provided you give it to him again in exchange for his goods. There is nothing which impresses a person of reflection with a stronger sense of the shallowness of the political reasonings of the last two centuries than the general reception so long given to a doctrine which, if it proves anything, proves that the more you take from the pockets of the people to spend on your own pleasures, the richer they grow, that the man who steals money out of a shop, provided he expends it all again at the same shop, is a benefactor to the tradesman whom he robs, and that the same operation, repeated sufficiently often, would make the tradesman's fortune. In opposition to these palpable absurdities, it was triumphantly established by political economists that consumption never needs encouragement. All which is produced is already consumed, either for the purpose of reproduction or of enjoyment. The person who saves his income is no less a consumer than he who spends it. He consumes it in a different way. It supplies food and clothing to be consumed, tools and materials to be used by productive laborers. Consumption, therefore, already takes place to the greatest extent which the amount of production admits of. But, of the two kinds of consumption, reproductive and unproductive, the former alone adds to the national wealth, the latter impairs it. What is consumed for mere enjoyment is gone. 
what is consumed for reproduction leaves commodities of equal value, commonly with the addition of a profit. The usual effect of the attempt of government to encourage consumption is merely to prevent saving, that is, to promote unproductive consumption at the expense of productive, and diminish the national wealth by the very means which were intended to increase it. What a country wants to make it richer is never consumption but production. Where there is the latter, we may be sure that there is no want of the former. To produce implies that the producer desires to consume. Why else should he give himself useless labor? He may not wish to consume what he himself produces, but his motive for producing and selling is the desire to buy. Therefore, if the producers generally produce and sell more and more, they certainly also buy more and more. Each may not want more of what he himself produces, but each wants more of what some other produces, and by producing what the other wants, hopes to obtain what the other produces. There will never, therefore, be a greater quantity produced of commodities in general than there are consumers for. But there may be, and always are, abundance of persons who have the inclination to become consumers of some commodity, but are unable to satisfy their wish, because they have not the means of producing, either that or anything, to give in exchange for it. The legislator, therefore, needs not give himself any concern about consumption. There will always be consumption for everything which can be produced, until the wants of all who possess the means of producing are completely satisfied, and then production will not increase any farther. The legislator has to look solely to two points, that no obstacle shall exist to prevent those who have the means of producing from enjoying those means as they find most for their interest, and that those who have not at present the means of producing, to the extent of their desire to consume, shall have every faculty afforded to their acquiring the means, that, becoming producers, they may be enabled to consume. The general principles are now well understood by almost all who profess to have studied the subject, and are disputed by few except those who ostentatiously proclaim their contempt for such studies. We touch upon the question not in the hope of rendering these fundamental truths clearer than they already are, but to perform a task so useful and needful that it is to be wished it were oftener deemed part of the business of those who direct their assaults against ancient prejudices, that of seeing that no scattered particles of important truth are buried and lost in the ruins of exploded error. Every prejudice, which has long and extensively prevailed among the educated and intelligent, must certainly be borne out by some strong appearance of evidence. And when it is found that the evidence does not prove the received conclusion, it is of the highest importance to see what it does prove. If this be thought not worth inquiring into, an error conformable to appearances is often merely exchanged for an error contrary to appearances, while, even if the result be truth, it is paradoxical truth, and will have difficulty in obtaining credence 
while the false appearances remain. Let us therefore inquire into the nature of the appearances, which gave rise to the belief that a great demand, a brisk circulation, a rapid consumption, three equivalent expressions, are a cause of national prosperity. If every man produced for himself, or with his capital employed others to produce everything which he required, customers and their wants would be a matter of profound indifference to him. He would be rich. If he had produced and stored up a large supply of the articles which he was likely to require, and poor, if he had stored up none at all, or not enough to last until he could produce more. The case, however, is different after the separation of employments. In civilized society, a single producer confines himself to the production of one commodity, or a small number of commodities, and his affluence depends not solely upon the quantity of his commodity which he has produced and laid in store, but upon his success in finding purchasers for that commodity. It is true, therefore, of every particular producer or dealer that a great demand, a brisk circulation, a rapid consumption of the commodities which he sells at his shop or produces in his manufactory is important to him. The dealer whose shop is crowded with customers, who can dispose of a product almost the very moment it is completed, makes large profit, while his next neighbor, with an equal capital but fewer customers, gains comparatively little. It was natural that, in this case, as a hundred others, the analogy of an individual should be unduly applied to a nation, as it has been concluded that a nation generally gains in wealth by the conquest of a province, because an individual frequently does so by the acquisition of an estate, and as, because an individual estimates his riches by the quantity of money which he can command, it was long deemed an excellent contrivance for enriching a country to heap up artificially the greatest possible quantity of precious metals within it. Let us examine then more closely than has usually been done the case from which the misleading analogy is drawn. Let us ascertain to what extent the two cases actually resemble. What is the explanation of the false appearance and the real nature of the phenomenon which, being seen instinctively, has led to a false conclusion? We shall propose, for examination, a very simple case, but the explanation of which will suffice to clear up all the other cases which fall within the same principle. Suppose that a number of foreigners with large incomes arrive in a country, and there expend those incomes. Will this operation be beneficial as respects the national wealth, to the country which receives these immigrants? Yes, say many political economists. If they save any part of their incomes, and employ them reproductively, because then an addition is made to the national capital, and the produce is a clear increase of the national wealth. But if the foreigner expends all his income unproductively, that is, no benefit to the country, say they, and for the following reason. If the foreigner has his income remitted to him in bread and beef, oats and shoes, and all the other articles which he has desirous to consume, it would not be pretended that his eating, drinking, and wearing them, on our shores rather on, than on his own, could be of any advantage to us in point of wealth. 
Now, the case is not different if his income is remitted to him in some commodity, as, for instance, in money. For whatever takes place afterward, with a view to the supply of his wants, is a mere exchange of equivalents, and it is impossible that a person should ever be enriched by merely receiving an equal value in exchange for an equal value. When it is said that the purchases of the foreign consumer give employment to capital which would otherwise yield no profit to its owner, the same political economists reject this proposition as involving the fallacy of what has been called a general glut. They say that the capital which any person has chosen to produce and to accumulate can always find employment, since the fact that he has accumulated it proves that he had an unsatisfied desire, and if he cannot find anything to produce for the wants of other consumers, he can for his own. It is impossible to contest these propositions as thus stated, but there is one consideration which clearly shows that there is something more in the matter than is taken here into account, and that is that the above reasoning tends distinctly to prove that it does a tradesman no good to go into his shop and buy his goods. How can he be enriched? It might be asked. He merely receives a certain value in money for an equivalent value in goods. Neither does this give employment to his capital, for there never exists more capital than can find employment, and if one person does not buy his goods another will, or if nobody does, there is overproduction in that business, he can remove his capital and find employment in another trade. Everyone sees the fallacy of this reasoning as applied to individual producers. Everyone knows that, as applied to them, it has not even the semblance of plausibility, that the wealth of a producer does in a great measure depend upon the number of his customers, and that in general every additional purchaser does really add to his profits. If the reasoning which would be so absurd if applied to individuals be applied to nations, the principle on which it rests must require much explanation and elucidation. Let us endeavor to analyze with precision the real nature of the advantage which a producer derives from an addition to the number of his customers. For this purpose it is necessary that we should premise a single observation on the meaning of the word capital. It is usually defined the food, clothing, and other articles set aside for the consumption of the laborer, together with the materials and instruments of production. This definition appears to us perfectly liable to misapprehension, and much vagueness, and some narrow views have, we conceive, occasionally resulted from its being interpreted with too mechanical an adherence to the literal meaning of the words. The capital, whether of an individual or of a nation, consists, we apprehend, of all matters possessing exchangeable value, which the individual or the nation has in his or in its possession for the purpose of reproduction, and not for the purpose of the owner's unproductive enjoyment. All unsold goods, therefore, constitute a part of the national capital, and of the capital of the producer or dealer to whom they belong. It is true that tools, materials, and the articles on which the laborer is supported are the only articles which are directly subservient to production, and if I have a capital consisting of money, or of goods in a warehouse, 
I can only employ them as means of production, in so far as they are capable of being exchanged for the articles which conduce directly to that end. But the food, machinery, etc., which will ultimately be purchased with the goods in my warehouse, may at this moment not be in the country, may not be even in existence. If, after having sold the goods, I hire laborers with the money, and set them to work, I am surely enjoying capital, though the corn, which in the form of bread, whose laborers may buy with the money, may now be in a warehouse at Danzig, or perhaps not even above ground. Whatever, therefore, is destined to be employed reproductively, either in its existing shape, or indirectly by a previous, or even subsequent, exchange, is capital. Suppose that I have laid out all the money I possess in wages and tools, and that the article I produce is just completed in the interval which elapses before I can sell the article, realize the proceeds, and lay them out again in wages and tools. Will it be said that I have no capital? Certainly not. I have the same capital as before, perhaps a greater, but it is locked up, as the expression is, and not disposable. Whether we have thus seen accurately what really constitutes capital, it becomes obvious that the capital of a country there is at all times a very large proportion lying idle. The annual produce of a country is never anything approaching in magnitude to what it might be if all the resources devoted to reproduction, if all the capital in short of the country, were in full employment. If every commodity on an average remained unsold for a length of time equal to that required for its production, it is obvious that at any one time no more than half the productive capital of the country would be really performing the functions of capital. The two halves would relieve one another, like the semikoi in a Greek tragedy, or rather the half which is in employment would be a functioning portion composed of varying parts, but the result would be that each producer would be able to produce every year only half as large a supply of the commodities as he could produce if he were sure of selling them the moment the production was completed. This, or something like it, however, the habitual state, at every instance, of a very large proportion of all the capitalists in the world. The number of producers or dealers who turn over their capital, as the expression is, in the shortest possible time, is very small. There are few who have so rapid a sale of their wares that all the goods which their own capital, or the capital which they can borrow, enables them to supply, are carried off as fast as can be supplied. The majority have not an extent of business at all adequate to the amount of the capital they dispose of. It is true that, in the communities in which industry and commerce are practised with greatest success, the contrivances of banking enabling the possessor of a larger capital than he can employ in his own business, to employ it productively, and derive a revenue from it notwithstanding. Yet even then there is, of necessity, a great quantity of capital which remains fixed in the shape of implements, machinery, buildings, etc., whether it is only half employed, 
or in complete employment, and every dealer keeps a stockpile in trade to be ready for a possible sudden demand, though he probably may not be able to dispose of it for an indefinite period. The perpetual non-employment of a large portion of capital is the price we pay for the division of labor. The purchase is worth what it costs, but the price is considerable. Of the importance of the fact which has just been noticed, there are three significant proofs. One is the larger sum often given for the goodwill of a particular business. Another is the larger rent which is paid for shops in certain situations, near a great thoroughfare, for example, which have no advantage except that the occupier may expect a large body of customers and be enabled to turn over his capital more quickly. Another is that in many trades there are some dealers who sell articles of an equal quality at a lower price than other dealers. Of course, this is not a voluntary sacrifice of profits. They expect by consequent overflow of customers to turn over their capital more quickly and to be gainers by keeping the whole of their capital in most constant employment, though on any given operation there are gains are less. Reasoning cited in the earlier part of this paper to show the usefulness of a mere purchaser or customer for enriching a nation of an individual applies only to the cases of dealers who have already as much business as their capital admits of, and as rapid a sale for their commodities as is possible. To such dealers an additional purchase is really of no use, for they are sure of selling all their commodities the moment those commodities are on sale. It is of no consequence whether they sell them to one person or to another, but it is questionable whether there be any dealers in whose case this hypothesis is exactly verified, and to the great majority it is not applicable at all. An additional customer to most dealers is equivalent to an increase of their productive capital. He enables them to convert a portion of their capital which was lying idle, and which could never have been productive in their hands until a customer was found, into wages and instruments of production, and if we suppose that the commodity, unless bought by him, would not have found a purchaser for a year after, then all which a capital of that value can enable men to produce during a year is clear gain, gain to the dealer, or producer, and to the laborers whom he will employ, and thus, if no one sustains any corresponding loss, gain to the nation. The aggregate produce of the country for the succeeding year is, therefore, increased, not by the mere exchange, but by calling into activity a portion of the national capital, which had it not been for the exchange, would have remained for some time longer unemployed. Thus, there are actually at all times producers and dealers of all or nearly all classes, whose capital is lying partially idle, because they have not found the means of fulfilling the conditions which the division of labor renders indispensable to the full employment of capital, viz. that of exchanging their products with each other. If these persons could find one another out, they could mutually relieve each other from this disadvantage. Any two shopkeepers in insufficient employment, who agreed to deal at each other's shops so long as they could there purchase articles of as good a quality as elsewhere, and as low a price, would render the nation a service. It may be said that they must previously have dealt to the same amount with some other dealers, but this is erroneous, since they could only have obtained the means of purchasing 
by being previously enabled to sell. By their compact, each would gain a customer, who would call his capital into fuller employment. Each, therefore, would obtain an increased produce, and they would thus be enabled to become better customers to each other than they could be to third parties. It is obvious that every dealer who has not business sufficient fully to employ his capital, which is the case with all dealers when they commence business, and with many to the end of their lives, is in the predicament simply for want of some one with whom to exchange his commodities. And as there are such persons, to about the same degree probably in all trades, it is evident that if these persons sought one another out, they have their remedy in their own hands, and by each other's assistance might bring their capital into more full employment. We are now qualified to define the exact nature of the benefits which a producer or dealer derives from the acquisition of a new customer. It is as follows. 1. If any part of his own capital was locked up in the form of unsold goods, producing, for a longer period or a shorter, nothing at all, a portion of this is called into greater activity, and becomes more consistently productive. But to this we must add some further advantages. 2. If the additional demand exceeded what can be supplied by setting at liberty the capital which exists in the state of unsold goods, and if the dealer has additional resources which were productively invested in the public funds, for instance, but not in his own trade, he is enabled to obtain, on a portion of these, not mere interest, but profits, and so to gain that difference between the rate of profit and the rate of interest, which may be considered as wages of superintendence. 3. If all the dealer's capital is employed in his own trade, and no part of it locked up as unsold goods, the new demand affords him additional encouragement to save, by enabling his savings to yield him not merely interest, but profit. If he does not choose to save, or until he shall have saved, it enables him to carry on an additional business with borrowed capital, and so gain the difference between interest and profit, or, in other words, to receive wages of superintendence on a larger amount of capital. This, it will be found, is a complete account of all the gains which a dealer in any commodity can derive from an accession to the number of those who deal with him. And it is evident to every one that these advantages are real and important and that they are the cause which induces a dealer of any kind to desire an increase of his business. It follows from these premises that the arrival of a new unproductive consumer, living on his own means, in any place, be that place a village, a town, or an entire country, is beneficial to that place, if it causes to any of the dealers of the place any of the advantages above enumerated, without withdrawing an equal advantage of the same kind from any other dealer of the same place. End of part one of essay two.